O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So then in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer coming by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to who the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the, faith, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And this is God's word. You may be seated. Also now, if you have kids and you want to send them back to one of the kids' rooms, you can send them their way. And uh, I just have a brief thing to share with you. Actually, uh, today, Nick, uh, Nick Lang, Pastor Nick here, was going to, uh, he was going to 
get up and talk for a moment. We're probably going to do that later. But he wanted me to share, as he and Hannah, they went on a hike with the girls today, and Hannah's actually not feeling super. But uh, we actually, as elders, have talked to Nick, and they've had a lot, they've had a lot going on just in their, in their lives, buying a new salon. But also there's, there's kind of some inward stuff, some, like, some things that Nick really feels he has to like, walk through with God. There's some future ministry stuff he's really trying to discern. And so in the midst of all that, there's just a time. He needs a break, basically. And so we as elders on Tuesday kind of encouraged him into what he already wanted to do, and that was to take like three months off to just go to church and be a part of the community. And so if, if Hannah had felt better, they would be here with us today. And so it's, it's actually kind of nice to have this moment with them not here to just say to you what we all as elders really want to say, and that is let them be a part of the church for three months. Like talk to them, see how they're doing, check in. I, I actually think this is going to be a really really rich time for Nick and Hannah and the girls. And so just, just embrace them and check in on them. And if there is any way that you can like not go to them with a big thing that you're dealing with or something, just come talk to myself or any of the other elders and, and give him those three months. Um, that, that would be a real gift. And we really believe that God is prompting this for him and that it's going to be a sweet time. So there you go. I just wanted to tell you that before we jumped in, because he was going to share with you all. So having said that, let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll jump into this evening's sermon. Father in heaven, I thank you for a chance to be here with these people gathered in your name. I know that some of us here would say, yeah, we're, we're in Christ. This is our church. Um, we are here under your word. For some of us, we might still be trying to figure that out. Um, do we belong to you? Do we want to? Uh, what is the Bible? What does this mean? There's a lot in this passage this evening. God, it's been a lot to wade through for me. I pray that what I say tonight would be helpful. I pray that we begin to understand the Bible more, even as we dig into this particular scripture. I pray that you'd build up our community. I pray that you would prepare us for what we're supposed to do, for how we're supposed to represent you in the world, how we're supposed to disciple one another. I pray that you would help us and strengthen us and guide us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So that was, uh, that was not the longest scripture reading we've ever done. Uh, some of you were around a couple years ago when we went through the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and we had some doozies. We had some long scripture readings, because we had to take big sections. And, and in a way, today is sort of similar, because this, this is a big idea being worked out here that has a lot to do with the Old Testament. I don't know how well you all tracked. I know when I read something like this off the pages of the Bible, sometimes I just kind of get lost. And sometimes it helps me to hear it in audio. I don't know if it helped to hear me read it for you at all, to follow along with what was being said. But we're going to dig into especially verses 15 to 18, that moment in there where he talked about the, the covenant and a ratified covenant and this for, the law and how it was given 430 years prior. That's the part we're really, really going to soak into this evening. And it's, uh, and like I said, when I, when I first looked at it, just cursory glance, and I imagined it up on the screen, I thought, this is the driest possible 
Bible text ever um, to present to you. I mean, nobody, that is nobody's life verse ever, right? Um, they're like, I just, oh, well, maybe there is. Maybe somebody out there who's like a lawyer is like, I love all that stuff about ratified covenant. Maybe, maybe. But it seems very detailed and technical, the kind of text we can breeze over or get lost in and lose the forest for the trees. So today, we're, we're really going to try to have one main takeaway, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little explanation here of why does this matter, and I know you've been waiting for me to talk more about Justin Bieber, and so you'll get your chance. Don't worry. We're going to go there tonight, um, and so we're going to talk about why does this matter. Secondly, we're going to just dial in on this main takeaway and then ask, how does this get practically put to use in a community like this? Um, what do we do with this information? And I, and I actually think it's really helpful the more I've thought about it. So why does this matter? Here's your Justin Bieber moment. Um, who listened to the new album? Easter, Easter Sunday came out. I know. I always say, Josh Selvey, thank you back there. I'm in the wrong church sometimes. I, like, I, I always tell people, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, guys, 80s country, who's with me? Nobody, right? And then, or I'm like, underground hip-hop from 92, who's with me? Nobody. Well, Jared. See, there's like one. There's always one. And so I feel like all these interests of mine, there's one of you. Selvey's with me on Bieber, so I'll take it. That's, that's the best we can do. So... Justin Bieber, new album. Uh, if you, for those of you, I, I might even just need to explain who Justin Bieber is to you. It sounds like, so he put out a new gospel album on uh, on Easter. It might cuss a little bit. If you've got kids, be aware of that. Um, it's uh, you know Justin Bieber, YouTube sensation, one of the early ones, millionaire at age seventeen, Canadian kid, reckless supercar driving, previous drug using, FBI rated skinny kid with a lot of tattoos. There you go. And he has a high voice. And uh, when I was a middle school director, I had to think about Bieber a lot because the girls were very into him. And interestingly, back when he first started releasing music, um, I remember this because one of the kids in my youth group brought me the Justin Bieber Bible study. And so back in the day, believe it or not, before all the craziness occurred, Cassie knows, yeah, there was a Justin Bieber Bible study. And so I was like, really? Okay, maybe, wow, okay. And we did not use it. Um, I, I was li- just a little too orthodox for it. I was like, I'm gonna have to just put this over here. But it was, it was, something, it was something good to know. And apparently this is a part of his childhood and, and he's kind of come home of recent. Um, he got involved in Hillsong. There was a viral video or photo of him walking around with Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage. So if you've done premarital with me and I made you read that, Guess what? You're not any better than Justin Bieber. So, and then, um, and then if, if any of you, now I know Mike and I are going to connect on this one, saw the old movie Extreme Days back in the day. Yeah, another, you know, piece of Christian cultural iconography. Um, that, the, the maker of that, Stephen Baldwin, has a daughter named Haley. Guess who she married? Justin Bieber, right? And so Bieber has now married into a Christian Hollywood family, going to church, reading Tim Keller, and now he's put out his first gospel album called Freedom. And here's the deal. I, I get inter- I'm always really interested when somebody, you know, this was, it was Kanye, whatever. I'm, I'm always really interested when somebody in the public eye is talking about Jesus. Not that I think this is our big moment or this is going to be perfect. It's just interesting. How, do, how is this working? How is this being received? 
What's happening here? I saw his album topped the charts. Why is that? You know, I think about that. Why? Why does anybody want to hear Justin Bieber sing about Jesus? It, why did it top the charts? I don't know. Um, but this album, Freedom is the title. And there's a reason for that. It's because he has gone through and he, and this is really the, the scope of the album. He talks about his life. He talks about the stupid things that he's done, the failures, the temptations of what it's like to be a 17-year-old with women throwing themselves at you because you have millions of dollars in supercars and just how tempting all that is and how he utterly failed. And then he transitions to this contemplation of Jesus and who Jesus is and kind of considering if he is who he says he is, then what? And then he kind of gets into like how that applies to his life. And in the very end of the album, he's asking these questions like, what does this mean for all the other failures in the world. And so if you know something about his journey and the journey of most celebrities, he, as with many other celebrities, have been kind of you know, aimed at through social media for their impropriety, right? And, and uh, trying to have their careers destroyed for whatever reason. And that happened to him. He, he had such accusations come at him. And so at the end of the album, he's basically saying, we can't throw people away because of their failures. And you see him wrestling with this, how do I have freedom, the freedom that God promised through Jesus, when the world is turned against me and everyone else? And how do we do it? How do we change? How do we leave our past behind? And he's wrestling with that kind of stuff. And that is, in a sense, what Paul is talking about in Galatians 3. Believe it or not, that's it is the same question. At the end of the day, it's the same question. Who is this Jesus? What do we do with him? If we believe, how does that change anything? How does it change us? How does it change our relationship to others? And how should we live now? What, what do we do? So this text, Galatians 3, and especially this section that I'm talking about, it seems so dry is actually very relevant because it answers these questions and it helps us put some critical things in order so we can understand how the gospel works. A couple weeks ago, I talked about Abraham and this ancient faith that we have. So Abraham, who's being talked about in Galatians 3, this father of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, has this promise given to him that aligns with an even more ancient promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it has to do with this offspring, an offspring, one offspring who would bless the nations. And not just Israel, but all the nations. And it's at the core of what Paul is arguing about in the book of Galatians. Now, the book of Galatians, just to give you a quick catch up, we've, we've read so much, we've gone through so much already at this point in the year, But Paul is writing to people who have received the gospel, who are non-Jewish people. And then they've been kind of infiltrated by a Jewish group of Christians that is saying that their faith is not enough. They need to also add to it some of the Jewish traditions and parts of the Jewish law. They need to be circumcised. They need to follow certain festivals and certain rituals. And if they don't, their faith is not complete. 
And Paul in the book of Galatians is going after that so, so strong that it's surprising how agitated he is at these other fellow Christians who are adding something to the gospel and who are jeopardizing the faith of the Galatians. It's core to what Paul is arguing. And Paul is saying there's a promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham believed that promise. And on the day he believed it, it was counted to him as if he was righteous, as if he had righteousness just for having believed it. That promise was sealed and done. The agreement between him and God was complete. It was ratified in blood. And in fact, circumcision, which they're arguing about, was just there to remind him of the fact that this was a done deal. Paul is talking about that and saying, look, this promise to Abraham is important. It's what we still stand on today. And then he goes on to say that after, and this is following a rabbinic tradition, 430 years after that promise was made and was sealed and was done, God delivered the law, the books of the law, to Abraham's descendants after they were enslaved in Egypt. He gave them these two tablets of the law. We know them as the Ten Commandments, right? You see the pictures of the two arched stones or whatever. We don't know exactly what they looked like, but we know there were two tablets. On one of them, there were commands about how we should worship and relate to God. On the other one, there were commands about how we should treat others. So there's a God tablet, how to relate and worship God, and there's an others tablet, how to treat others. You shouldn't steal from them. You shouldn't kill them and such things. And then we know that the law expands on those headings and gives us all kinds of detailed laws on how people, especially in covenant, when they're inside of a promise with God, how they can do that specifically. And that is the law, if you will, of the Old Testament. So Paul is saying the promise of God was sealed and made centuries before the law came. Therefore, the law is not how you get God's promises. It can't be. It wasn't around for 400 plus years of time of God's people's existence. It must have another job, another role. I'm going to read 15 and 18 one more time, just so you can kind of check what I just said. Paul says, to give a human example, even with a man-made covenant, so think of like a, an agreement, something you might sign, no one annuls to it or adds to it once it's been ratified, once it's been completed. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but, but referring to one and to your offspring, who, Paul says, is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul is saying here, if you could see it, 
Jesus Christ is the offspring God had promised in the garden, Genesis 3.15. He's the offspring promised to Abraham that through him all people would be blessed. The law is not the path to freedom and blessing from God. The promise is. The law, therefore, has a completely different purpose. Now, why do these details matter? Right? Why? Because they help us understand what in the world is going on in the Bible. Like, it's really long, right? There's a lot of law in there. We're currently at home. We're, we're a little behind on the one-year stuff. We are reading Leviticus with Abby, and I recommend it highly for all 13-year-olds. It's really quite nice, isn't it, Abby? Um, it's like, what is happening here, right? What is, there's a lot going on in this Bible. What do we do with it? What does this mean for us? These details help us understand the role of God's law and of God's gospel. And the gospel is good news that there is a promise from God that he's going to keep. So then, just as like Justin Bieber is exploring, it helps us understand what can give us the power to live better and by what standard should we live as Christians. It helps us distinguish between this promise and this good news about Jesus and then what can teach us how to live and how do we understand it. The main takeaway for this evening, okay, this is my second thing. This, we're going to preach through this for a couple more weeks to some degree. We're going to explore the law more. But for this evening, this is what I want to soak in. The good news or the gospel is not the law. The law has a purpose. So we need to understand what the gospel is all about first because it came first. It's of utmost importance. And then we can put the law in its place and know how to use that. At our small group this week, Tabitha had a great question. Um, she And it really honestly helped me process this. So thank you. It was an awesome question. And so she was referring to Galatians 3.8, which John had read last week, I believe. And in it, it says that God preached the gospel to Abraham. And Tabitha goes, okay, so is that the same gospel? Because like the gospel that I'm used to hearing is that Jesus died for my sins and rose again so I could be with him in heaven or some form of that, right? That's what we're used to hearing as the gospel. So how did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Was it the same gospel? I think that's maybe what you said, Tabitha. Was it the same gospel? And the answer is, it was, and it wasn't. What I mean is this, it was the same gospel, but it wasn't all of the gospel we have now. Same gospel, but not all of the gospel. The gospel, okay, I'm going to give another definition here, is the good news of God's grace, grace Excellent word, um, an Old Testament word for it could be steadfast or never-ending love. Basically, it's the goodness of God given freely to those who don't deserve it. 
It's the good news of God's grace that undoes the bad news. What's the bad news? There's a lot of bad news. There's an enemy with doing destructive work that tempts us. There's our failure and our susceptibility to temptation, our desire to do things our own way, our rebellion. It undoes that bad news and points us to the hope of all God's people. And the hope is reconciliation to God by his initiative and power to bring it to completion. As I mentioned earlier, we studied the Pentateuch a couple years ago, and there's that Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That fits the definition of good news, the gospel. That is all Adam and Eve needed to know at that time, was God was saying, I will defeat your tempter and undo what he has done through your offspring. And we believe they believed that. And that is all at that time they needed. They believed the good news that God gave them. And that's all they needed to do. Then later in Genesis, Abraham is given this bigger gospel. All the families of the earth will be blessed through his one offspring, but it's a retelling and an expanding of Genesis 3.15. You see, in the, in the Bible, you could think of it like this. The gospel is like a seed. And so I think of these big mesquite trees that are out here, and it's crazy to call them big because we planted those. We moved in here just a few years ago, and they were not that big. They came on a little trailer, Right? And we all know how they started, right? There was once a mesquite bean that fell, and there was a, a, you know, several seeds in a pod, and one of those went into some potting soil of some form and sprouted. And that's what the gospel is like in the scriptures. It's like a seed that's planted. And then in Genesis 3.15, you see it like sprout out of the earth, barely. You get this little promise. And then in Abraham, it's like it's starting to grow a couple of little arms, and you can sort of see a little bit more. Oh, all the nations, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And there's, there's a little more detail around it. And you see what I talked about last week, like the way that God delivered that promise to Abraham in this covenant ceremony, you'd have to go back and listen to it, but it teaches us some things about how God works. So you see more. It's like you've got a little one-gallon tree. And then it grows, and it becomes more visible and more evident until at some point it's mature, and it can be filled with creatures and birds, and it can give shade and life. And this is kind of what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 31 and, and forward. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the tiniest of seeds. And then it grows up and it matures and all the birds of the field are able to to find shelter within it. What he's saying is that's how the kingdom of God works. It grows slowly but surely and it brings all these people in. And that's kind of how we experience it. It's planted. It begins to grow in Genesis. If you think about Genesis, where Genesis goes after Abraham, it's pretty incredible. We talked about this at the small group. Uh, To me, the Joseph narrative has just grown in richness as time has gone on. It's really, really pretty incredible. Think about this. Just look for hints of the gospel, just as I describe this. Abraham's family. 
It's grown and multiplied, right? Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. They have other children, but they have these, these offspring in whom God is at work. And Jacob's sons turn on their brother Joseph, right? One of them who's beloved by his father. And there's prophecies telling them they will do this, but they mock Joseph, who's also the prophet. He has his coat that represents his father's pleasure in him. And due to their hard hearts and sinful schemes, they take their brother, they strip him of his garment, and they're going to leave him for dead. He's left captive in the ground, but God delivers him from the ground. And because of his faithfulness, as he enters into Egypt, he's exalted. He's raised up and he's set at the right hand of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And when his brothers come come to him, he tests their hearts, but he offers them grace when he sees that they have hearts that are repentant of what they had done. And he sees the faithfulness of God, and he preaches it back to his brothers who betrayed him, saying, what you meant for evil, the Lord has meant for good. And he delivers them from their famine and gathers them safely in a kingdom. And this was the story God's people knew when Moses was raised up to deliver them and inscribed that first book of Genesis, right? This is what God's people had. And if you think about the whole story, there's a promise of an offspring who's going to save them. At the end of Genesis, one of the offspring saves them. At that time, that's all they needed to know. God had been faithful to his promise. So then when he said, I'm going to deliver you out of your slavery and take you to a new land, they were to look back at the promise he made before, see that he kept it, and believe him as they moved forward. We're in the same boat. We've just seen more than they've seen. See, in Exodus, the gospel grows even more. It goes from like the one-gallon tree to the five-gallon tree because now God actually, with miraculous signs and wonders, delivers them out of their enslavement in Egypt, shows them his wonders. And then Exodus 20 is really incredible because you know, then from the, the top of a mountain, you know, engulfed in flame, God delivers to them his law. And he says, I am the Lord who delivered you out of Egypt and then gives him his commandments and says basically something like what Jesus said, follow me, trust me, follow my words. Do you see the order of that and how important that is? God did not say, here are my commandments. If you follow these, I will accept you and you will be my people. No. God said, I am the Lord your God who already delivered you. Here is how to please me. Here is how to love me. Here is how to love your neighbor. Out of my grace. The gospel in Exodus is growing. We've got a five-gallon tree, maybe even a 10-gallon tree. So what is the law? I mean, that's what Paul is explaining in Galatians 3. So what is the law? And we're going to spend a lot more time on it next week. But for now, I'll say it is what I've just described. It's what God gives to people who are already his people, the people to whom he's made promises, 
to show them more of his character and how to please him, to show them how he deals with sin, to show him how, them how he delivers grace and how to love others out of that grace. The law, you could say, is a tool for learning and applying the gospel for God's people so they can learn how to live as people who've been chosen by God and sustained by his grace. The gospel is a seed growing up, and the law has elements in it that are like branches of a tree that will one day grow and mature. An example of that, which we read with Abby just recently in Leviticus, would be something like the Day of Atonement. That was like a branch of the tree, something teaching us when the high priest would take a sacrifice into the temple to cover over the sins of all the people. And then Jesus will one day come and he'll supersede that law. He doesn't do away with it. He supersedes it. And he becomes a high priest who offers himself, says the book of Hebrews. Jesus was fulfilling the stipulations of the book of Exodus. The, the, the seed has grown into a tree that has matured. We see more, we see more, we see more. So the law is not the gospel. We need to understand what the gospel is. It's what Paul calls the promise. It's the sure and solid benefit that God has covenanted with his people. God's people are reconciled to God because he reconciled them. God's people do have the blessings of the covenant because God declared that they do. God's people do have eternal and abiding hope because God is eternal and abiding and he is our hope. The law is delivered to people who stand in his grace, who have that identity and blessing. And we can especially understand it in light of Jesus. So what do we do with that information today? So, okay, so say you, that's still a lot, I know. Still a complex thing to say. But say you've said, okay, all right, I accept that. What do we do with it? This is a key moment, I think, in the strategy of our church. And I want to go ahead and say not just our church, but all Christian churches need to think this through. People enter into the covenant with God. People enter into relationship with God by grace, only by grace. The promise is what God gives freely. It's conditioned on his faithfulness and nothing else. If you want to, to build the kingdom, if you want to be a faithful Christian, the message that you take to people is grace. And any other conditional message of do this, be this kind of person, be better, get this right, is not the message. And it will do no good work. Two weeks ago, I said that this faith that we have is an ancient faith, yes, but it was a blessed faith. It's a, it was a happy faith. And that's because it's given it's a gift that is given. I mean, that's a happy faith. All, all other versions of faith, sadly, so many delivered by 
we Christians in the church are workloads that we give. But this is a blessing. It is a gift. It is utter and sheer grace. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, ancient people having hearing about this covenant with God and Abraham would have been shocked. They would have been shocked at it because the old kings, when they made covenants, the people who entered into the covenant with the king entered trembling because they knew if they failed the king, they would be destroyed. And in the old covenant between God and Abraham, God takes all of the weight on himself. He is the one who puts himself in the place of trembling and Abraham is asleep during the covenant ceremony. I mean, this is an incredible moment. What kind of God, what kind of king makes a promise where he takes all the negative connotations of it upon himself and where you just rest and receive? And he says, if this covenant is broken, I will be broken. What kind of king says that? The ancient people would have been shocked. We should be shocked at the gospel that we have received. This is a God who you would be happy to serve. This is a king like no other. Is this how we, the people who've been given the covenant, offer it to others? We should be very concerned and careful to offer God's gospel, his good news, the way that he offers it. This should be of utmost concern to us. I just read an article, came out last year, and it was titled, If You're Fighting the Culture War, You're Losing. Excellent article. It was getting at this exactly. It talked about an organization that had been formed, and you could imagine this organization being formed on any side of any spectrum of the, of the political sphere in our culture, right? And it was saying, we need to fight. We have to, it was all, it was military language. We need to fight, we need to win. And he, in this article, his name is Cap Stewart. He said this, and I thought this was so good. He said, we are not at war with our ideological opponents, we are at war for them in Christianity. We're at war for them. And there are a lot of great scriptures used, but what he's getting at in there, he says this, basically, how do you go to war for people? How do you take them good news? How do you do spiritual, spiritual battle? Well, first of all, you have to be a transformed person. So in the scriptures, we have the fruit of the spirit, right? What, what's the evidence that grows from a tree that is a good tree? It's, it's good, healthy fruit, right? And there's fruit of the spirit, kindness, gentleness, peace, patience, goodness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. That's the type of person that is the missionary going out into God's world, who's been transformed by grace, they are such a person. And they go out with good news. There's reconciliation with God. There's grace from God that you can have. And with spiritual pers persuasion that might show the emptiness 
of what you're drinking from now, that this is an empty well, that there's no water, but that Jesus has come bringing something that is water and can bring satisfaction to our souls. We're not fighting to beat people. We're not fighting to win against people. We're fighting to save people, help people, bring people good news. That is what the church does. I read a couple other things, though, that challenged me with one more thing that I think is important for us, too. We need to get clear that what we take out to people is not a critique on how they could be more like us. Because guess what? They're looking at us in the news and stuff, and they know being like us is really easy. They can just keep doing what they're doing, right? Or potentially be worse, and then they could be like us. I mean, it's pretty easy to see. If you look out there at public opinion, you look at our statistics, we're not better people. We should be people of hope. So, so what we take out to people is grace. But do we, are we taking them grace? That's another good question. I was challenged by two. I read a book and an article recently. The first was called Even Evangelism in Exile by Elliot Clark. Then I listened to a podcast by Mez McConnell. I don't know if you've heard of either of them. But in two very different ways, these two were pushing us as Christians and saying, if we indeed have this good news, we should be taking it out. We should be doing something with it. If we are floored by the gospel, if we are as surprised as those ancient people would have been at the kind of God who would covenant with us and be willing to take the curse of the covenant on himself, we should share it. Elliot Clark, in, in this book, Evangelism in Exile, he was a longtime missionary in Muslim countries. There was a city he worked in where there was one believer and she was 14, in a city the size of Tucson. And so you could kind of read between the lines where he was saying, I'm sorry that there's some laws that are changing. They're making it a little harder for you. But believe me, there's places out there where it's worse and the Christian can have utter hope in the middle of that. Because I know a 14-year-old girl that isn't complaining at all, she loves Jesus. And she's the only one in town. And this girl came to them because they heard that they were these foreigners who were also Christians, and they wanted to respect her mother and father when they shared the gospel with her. So they went over to their house. She talked them into it. Mom and dad are not Christians. And when they went in and they shared what Christ had done, they realized we are sharing the gospel in a city where there are zero known Christians and where Christianity is illegal. And to do this, we risk our lives. This could be a trap because it often is in that situation. And they had to decide, is this news good enough to share in this situation? And they did. And the 14-year-old remains a Christian to this day. She's no longer, of course, 14. And she's a leader. And she's taken the gospel out. If she can do it, we can do it, right? in a culture that's just sort of debating some laws. We're not in that bad a shape. And even if we were, 
What L.A. Clark says in his book is he says, if we get into bad shape where the gospel is opposed, we will be like the rest of the world and like all the situations described in Scripture. Mez McConnell is a whole other interesting deal. He's from the slums of Scotland. So here you have a post-Christian Western nation, right, that used to have dominant churches, the Presbyterians, right? That's where they hailed from, but not anymore. It's changed. The churches are empty. It's very dry spiritually. Mez McConnell went to jail, and after he got out of jail, he didn't have an ID, and it was hard to find a place, and somebody let him live with them, and he found Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. I've got one of those. It's three really long books of old, dry English writing. Anybody tried it? Yeah, Jared. 90s hip-hop and long commentaries. I like it. He read the whole thing. No education. And he believed it. And without anybody giving him a convincing argument other than Matthew Henry's old commentary. And he started doing ministry in this post-Christian Western nation, right? And he, so people ask him now, how do you do it? And he says, I go and I tell people that they're terrible and that they have like, that their sins are so bad, there's nothing they can do about it, that God is justly angry with it and they need to be forgiven. And the guy, and the, the interviewer is like, and this works? He says, yeah. And he said, didn't you work in like a wealthy church? What'd you do there? And he said, I said the same thing. And he said, did it work there? And he said, yeah. And they said, why? He said, because they're just rich and terrible. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. He said, and he goes, they're fine with it. If you tell them they're rich and terrible, they know they are. They can't stand each other. They're not really, they're, some of them reject this, but a lot of them don't because they know it's true. And then he had to go back to like, you know, families like his that are poor. He talked about his family and he goes, he said, they, everybody wants to tell me and the people who come from the slums that I come from that we're victims. He said, but you know, yeah, like there's a lot of bad things that have been done to us, but we keep doing bad stuff. So I tell them that, that I tell the rich people that I tell them the same thing. A lot of them believe it. They're coming to church now. A lot of these people from the slums are becoming leaders. It's really not that complicated, right? It's really not that complicated. A lot of churches aren't growing in Scotland. His is exploding. Okay, he's saying very, very simple things. Interestingly, think about it. Isn't that kind of just what everybody's telling each other anyway? The poor people in our world can't stand the rich people because they're all scum and they're all really crooked. And the rich people are all looking at the poor people saying, why don't you... Why don't you, like, stop doing the things you do? I mean, maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe instead of pointing fingers at each other, we're supposed to point them at ourselves and say, if I were to stand before God myself, the truth is it's pretty ugly. And just start with that and own it and go out with a message of grace instead of pointing and blaming people like the law. I think that's pretty much what Paul's saying in Galatians 3. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a Bible that says really complex things that undergird the things that are actually going on in our world. Thank you that 
the promise that you gave to Abraham was the same one you gave in the garden, was the same one you gave to Moses. The good news is that though we aren't good, you are gracious. That we don't offer ourselves or our new standard of living, but we offer Christ crucified. I pray that we would be the type of people, the type of church that listens to that message for ourselves. That we wouldn't go out fighting for ourselves in our way because we wouldn't believe in ourselves in our own way enough to do so. I pray that we would be humbled, that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time and in your way we would be exalted, as Peter encouraged us. I pray that we would bring news of grace because we understand it and because we accept it ourselves, that we would point the finger at ourselves, that we would be radically, radically devoted to following you and understanding your law and abiding by it in the church, and that we would be radically committed to delivering grace and a promise that cannot be broken out to people who don't know who you are, so that they could love you and be motivated to serve you, and therefore say that they delight in the law as we are supposed to delight in the law. Teach us these things by your spirit, please. Help us to understand and go on to maturity. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we worship in three ways here at Mission. Um, We always sing together and we have giving, that is, a, there's an iPad in the back. You can give through the screen. The Lord's Supper, friends, returns next week. Look forward to that. And we take this time before we do those things of confession. There's going to be two minutes of silence here for you to just stand before the throne of grace. Just to, just to consider this God who makes the promise and says, I take the covenant, like I take the negative sides, I take the punishments of the covenant upon myself so that when you obey me, you can obey me with your whole heart. Just stand before that for two minutes. You could ask yourself some questions. How do I feel about my sin in front of such a gracious God? You could think of your least favorite person right now, the most exhausting wrong person you know, and then contemplate this, that you know so little about them that the truth is you are worse than you think they are, but that God loves you more than you could ever wrap your mind around and just sit in that for about two minutes. So take that time silently. Mike will bring us out of that with a song, and then let's express to God our gratitude for his grace.